If you would, please turn with me to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, we'll be reading verses 1 through 4. We won't be doing a from a, an in-depth study or explanation or a sermon dedicated to the passage of Psalm 70 verses 1 through 4 by using this, the topic of, that's there in this passage to, in a way, launch us to the topic of today's sermon. Psalm 78, beginning in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we look to be, to be faithful. We desire to be as faithful as the saints who have come before us, these saints who have lined the way, these saints who have proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have transferred their, their stories of faithfulness to us. Lord, help us to be as faithful, and we pray that with the time that we have this morning, the time remaining, that you would embolden us, that you would encourage us towards faithfulness in our Christian walk. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I asked you about your narrative, I'd essentially be asking about your story, to which you'd go on to tell me about your life. Perhaps your parents, who they were, your upbringing, perhaps telling me about significant events in your life, perhaps things that have shaped you to make you to the person that you are today. Now, if I asked you about your legacy or your heritage, that's a different story. And I'm using both of those synonymously. What I'd be essentially asking is, I'd be asking about the bigger narrative of your life, the narrative to which your narrative belongs. Because your legacy has more to do, not just about your story, but more so with the story of your parents, grandparents, perhaps even great-grandparents. What were they like? How did they grow up? What traditions have they passed on, passed on from generation to generation? perhaps including the culture, society in which they grew up in, the ones in which you have adopted and grew up in as well. As we think about this from a Christian perspective, and I think we see this also in this passage, from a Christian point of view, our legacy and our heritage means a great deal to us, or at least it should because your story as a Christian belongs to a much bigger story. 
I'm talking about the bigger narrative to which your personal Christian narrative belongs. It is the story of faith that began in the Scriptures with a man named Adam and the first sin. If you're a Christian, then your story belongs to the bigger story of God and his attempts to bring about salvation through Abraham, through the patriarchs, through the Exodus. God establishing a people, a people and a nation for himself will be the objects of his kindness and his grace and his mercy. Your story belongs to the bigger story that also includes the Savior who is Jesus Christ. It also includes the, the birth of the first church. It includes the witness and the preaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ. It also includes the faithful witnesses throughout church history, many of which have also died on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Christian, your story is part of that larger narrative. This passage in Psalm 78 has everything to do with legacy. For it says that we will tell, not just the psalmist, but those that he includes with him, will tell the coming generation of the glorious deeds of the Lord. If you are here today and you have been raised in a Christian home with parents who have raised you up in the fear of the Lord, right, you are very blessed. And what they were doing is, in a way, it's a transferring of legacy. Is giving to you a heritage, a heritage of faithfulness, of giving to you the scriptures, giving to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, declaring to you the awesome deeds of the Lord, whether it's through their own personal lives and their personal witnessing of the deeds of the Lord, or just by articulating to you the very stories of the scriptures, telling you of who the Lord is, what he has done, the importance of faith. And while certainly Jesus is the only one who saves, you might owe a large part to your Christian faith to your parents and their faithful witnessing. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us, to all of us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy also instructs parents to teach their children to love the Lord and to obey His commandments. Ephesians commands fathers to raise their children in the feet and instruction of the Lord. The book of Corinthians also points the church to the past, to looking at the examples of those who came before, namely the Israelites, namely their, their sins and their pattern of forgetfulness, as an example to us to not follow in their patterns, so letting their examples helping us to help us know how to live rightly today. So essentially, the Bible commands a passing down of legacy. And there are threats and obstacles to this passing down of heritage and legacy. Such threats are, but not limited to, syncretism, for example, the mixing of secular wisdom or other religions with the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To say that Jesus is not the only way, the truth and the life, and the only way to the Father. Another one is worldliness, where 
Christians who are called, according to the Scriptures, to live distinctly from the world are actually looking more and more like the world. And they're threatened obstacles, not because they're outside of the church, but because they're in the church. One only needs to look at Ligonier's state of theology and looking at the results that they have come up with to see that syncretism and worldliness continues to be a significant threat to the Christian faith and how that has also penetrated the life of the church. Another threat to the handing down of this Christian legacy is forgetfulness. Several times in Deuteronomy, God warns his people about forgetting him and forgetting what God has done and forgetting the covenant of God. God warns his people in Deuteronomy 4.9, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. Both the Apostle Paul and Peter made it an emphasis of their ministry to remind the churches of the gospel and the kind of life that the gospel produces. 1 Corinthians 15.1, the Apostle Paul writes to the church, and I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.1, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through our apostles. Jesus teaches us that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a ministry of reminder, for he says to the apostles in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So then, given the Bible's concern for our remembering what has been passed down to us, we must do all we can to remember what has been passed down to us. The Christian faith, the gospel, the good news of salvation, this is part of our legacy, this is part of our heritage. We're called to continue to maintain it and to continue to pass it on to one another, to each other's children, to our own children, to the coming generations. This is our legacy. This is what we have been entrusted with. And with that, I want to point us to a significant event in the life of the church that definitely does not matter as nearly as much as Jesus Christ coming into the world, and yet is still significant for us to consider as a way of reminding us the importance of the gospel, of maintaining what has been entrusted to us, and hopefully as a way to encourage us to continue in a multi-generational faithfulness. So with that, I want to point us to the Protestant Reformation. In Hebrews 11.13, speaking of the saints who have come before us, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You can't talk about 
the Reformation without talking about Martin Luther. Luther was the bolt of lightning that struck and set ablaze the altar that had been prepared by others beforehand and their faithful witnessing. And throughout church history, there are many others that we would certainly include in this hall of faith. Individuals prior to Luther who were instrumental in setting down the firewood, drenching it in oil, in preparation for the Reformation. These individuals were sort of the John the Baptists of their day, not as forerunners of Christ, but as these voices crying out in the wilderness, strangers and exiles looking for that better country. So briefly, I want to mention just a few of these important individuals, and certainly there were many upon many others. One person I want to mention is Peter Waldo. Peter Waldo was from southeast France, believed to have died sometime between 1205, 1218, nobody's really sure. He was a wealthy merchant and then came to be troubled over the state of his own soul through a personal tragedy that he had witnessed. And so at the time, the Bible was only written in Latin and the common person could not read in Latin. And so he hired two scholars to interpret to to translate the scriptures in a language he could understand. So he began to read the scriptures. He sought out the counsel of a priest who pointed them to the story of the rich young ruler. He read that passage and came to the realization that he had been serving mammon or money all his life. And so that led him to, after making appropriate accommodations for his family, taking care of his family, praise God for that, he renounced his riches and gave his life to the preaching of the gospel openly and public, which was condemned by the Catholic Church at that time. He began to criticize Roman Catholic teaching, and many people were converted under his preaching. He came to reject purgatory, the need for mediators between God and man other than Jesus Christ, and that confession of sin could only be made to a priest and other Catholic doctrines. And Long after he lived, there would be, his followers would be considered Waldensians, and they established sort of these small communities. And thanks to the, the writings of Luther, which they began to read, they then embraced the teachings of Luther and Protestant doctrine. Another individual is John Wycliffe, born 1330, died 1384. He's been historically identified as the morning star of the Reformation. What he's most known for is the translation of the scriptures. He came to gradually understand the authority of the scriptures and came to reject papal authority. And the Catholic Church at the time condemned the translation of the Bible into common, what they consider common vulgar language. But Wycliffe went on to translate the Bible anyway into English and then had the scriptures copied, and this was before the printing press, and so each copy had to be copied painstakingly by hand. But regardless, it was translated with the help of others, it was copied and distributed amongst hundreds of pastors. The church condemned Wycliffe, and though they did not formally condemn him during his life because they feared riots and protests, they waited until after his death to condemn him as a, ter- as, as a heretic, and he left such a negative impression on the Roman Catholic Church that they, even after he died, they, they actually dug up his remains and buried, er, and, and burned them. 
One more individual, Ulrich Zwingli, born 1484, died 1531. Zwingli was a priest who broke away from Roman Catholic tradition by reading and preaching the scriptures in common language. Not only that, but he preached expositional sermons, meaning that he, it's, expo, it's sermons that are focused on the intent of the author, looking to discern what is the, the meaning of the passage and bring that to bear before the people and how to apply it to their lives. Catholic preaching was nothing like that, but rather was much more liturgical. He openly debated Catholic priests concerning Catholic doctrine. Being a priest himself, he was forbidden from marrying because as a priest, you were required to live a celibate life, but he married anyway. And he encouraged other priests as well to marry. He would eventually be arrested, tried, and drowned for his beliefs. So these men and many others were instrumental in setting the stage for the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. So now let's move forward and set the scene for this Reformation. In a documentary on the life of Martin Luther, church historian Dr. Stephen Nichols points to this, this 16th century painting where in the painting you have this large hay bale, and on top of that hay bale is, is the Pope, ministered by saints and angels, and at the bottom, on the ground, are the common people. Painted in much more darker tones, people are just up and about. There are just a few, I think, who are gazing up with their hands lifted. And at the very top of the painting on the sky is Jesus Christ. And the painting paints a pretty accurate picture of what the times were like. The only one who, had, who was understood to have access to Jesus Christ was a pope. No one else did. Christ and salvation was obscured. Christ was hidden from the people. Jesus is supposed to be the only way to eternal life, but the Catholic Church functioned as a sort of sovereign gatekeeper that stood between man and Christ. The Church of Rome, or the Roman Catholic Church, was the religion of the West for centuries. In the 16th century, long before that, it was intensely dark. And by the 16th century, the Catholic Church not only obscured Christ but it was also pregnant with corruption. Priests and elite clergy lived in luxury. The church collected money from its people like taxes. Worse, priests who were commanded to live celibate lives openly disregarded that teaching. Bishops and local priests would flaunt their illegitimate children. Convents and monasteries became centers of leisurely living. We're still is the fact that in this time in Germany, where the Reformation took place, the Bible is in the Latin. It's in the Latin Vulgate, which is a good translation, but not the most accurate translation. But it was in a language that only the clergy understood. And even if you could understand the Latin language, you didn't have access to the Bible. The common person did not have the Bible that they could read to, that they could go to at any moment, like you and I do. So if you can, for a moment, imagine a time such as that. We don't have access to the Bible. And certainly there are places in the world that do not have access to the Scriptures because no one has translated it into the language yet, but this is different. This is the church actually preventing people from having the Bible. Only the clergy had access to the Bible. Only the clergy could mediate between God and man, not Christ. Christ. 
Only the clergy could you confess your sins to. Only the clergy could you forgive, could forgive you of your sins. Only the clergy could tell you how to get right with God. And that wasn't primarily through Christ, that was through good works. So it was a dark time indeed. However, before Martin Luther would draw the line in the sand, there's one other event that essentially sets fire in the heart of Luther to then go on to challenge the church. Bishop Albert Brandenburg was at the time in possession of two Episcopal sees, meaning that he had jurisdiction over a particular town or region. So he had two of these particular offices, and those offices came with a lot of money. Now he was greedy, and he wanted a third, which is something you don't do. It's something you don't get. You actually need permission from the Pope to have a third Episcopal see. And so he went to the Pope, and that Pope at the time was Pope Leo X, and historically Pope Leo X is known as one of the worst popes in history, full of corruption and full of greed. Pope Leo X would give Albert his third bishopric if he paid him 10,000 ducats, which was the currency at the time. Now, Pope Leo had extravagant taste. In fact, his extravagant taste almost bankrupted the Vatican treasury. And a lot of the money at the time was going to a particular artist, a very talented artist, who painted a very famous ceiling, and that is Michelangelo, and painting the, the Sistine Chapel at St. Peter's Cathedral. So the 10000 would go towards paying for that, at least in part. So Albert and Pope strike a deal. Albert takes out a loan, pays Leo X, and he devises a scheme to pay back the bank and puts more money into the pockets of the Pope with the help of a man by the name of John Tetzel. Now, John Tetzel was smart, was entrepreneurial, he was shrewd, he was also a, a monk under Albert. Tetzel began to popularize, once again, indulgences, which began around the time of the Crusades when the Pope would try to recruit people to go out to war by offering them indulgences. So if you go out to war, or if you, if you are wealthy enough, if you send your servant out to war, you can have this indulgence, which is a certificate, which essentially means that you are spending less time in purgatory paying for your sins. So Tetzel began to popularize the idea of indulgences, and he would say that if you purchase these, if you give money to the church and pay for these indulgences, then you will, you will be essentially paying or paying for the time that your, that your beloved people or your loved ones are spending in purgatory. So you could take time off for those in purgatory. So by purchasing these indulgences, you can subtract time from purgatory on behalf of your loved ones. So indulgences not only meant that you could purchase repentance on your own behalf, but you can purchase repentance on behalf of others. He even came up with a little clever jingle, which would say, when a coin and a coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He would go on to preach and say such things as, can you hear your dead relative screaming out in pain in purgatory while you fiddle away your money? 
So all this was going on, and then we have Martin Luther. Martin Luther was on a trajectory of becoming a lawyer until one day he's nearly struck by lightning and scared half to death, and then makes a vow to St. Anne to become a monk if she would save him. St. Anne was the patron saint of minors, and his father was a minor. Surprisingly, Martin Luther keeps his vow. He leaves the trajectory of becoming a lawyer and pursues becoming a monk, becomes an Augustinian monk. Now, throughout his life, Luther had bouts of depression, and this became intensified when he pursued this monastic life. He increasingly became troubled over the state of his own soul. No matter how much he tried, no matter how much he worked, Luther could never get any sense of assurance of a right standing in the presence of God. Rigorous study, a life dedicated to the church, hours, a day, praying, none of these things brought any kind of relief to his soul. He would spend hours at the confessional. Priests would actually get sick of him because he'd be there for hours and hours, and then he'd leave the confessional, think of another thing he needed to confess, and then went right back to the confessional. He became most troubled by the book of Romans. One passage that troubled him most was Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He agonized over that passage and other passages in the book of Romans to speak of the justice of God. He agonized so much about it that he even came to hate God. All he could understand from a passage like Romans 1, 16 and 17 is that God shows himself righteous in the condemnation of sinners. But that does nothing to help him, to aid him on how to get saved. And after agonizing study, years of study, to make a long story short, finally the light bulb turns on and begins to understand what the passage meant. Luther came to understand that the passage is not talking about how God shows himself righteous in the condemnation of sinners, but rather the passage is teaching how God shows himself righteous in the salvation of sinners. That God is not forsaking his righteousness, that God is not being less just and saving sinners, but actually he is showing himself righteous by saving those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come into the world and absorb the wrath of God for the sins of his people. That in that way, God shows himself righteous. And in this way that the sinner, by faith, passively receives the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he describes this moment as the moment of his conversion. And up until that time, he became increasingly aware of the corruption that permeated the church. And now, thanks to his conversion, he was ready to challenge that corruption. On October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed on the doors of the castle church in Wittenberg his 95 Theses also known as Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. They were propositions for debate, 
And as the title suggests, the document was largely produced in response to the indulgences of John Tetzel and the Catholic Church. Now, historians would all, historians all agree that there's, there's no way that Luther could have understood exactly what he was doing and leaning his 95 theses on that church. He could not understand that the gravity of that moment because he was essentially challenging the church itself. The Pope was dismissive of Luther and considered it to be the ramblings of a drunkard. However, these theses threatened the income generated by the sale of indulgence, money that essentially was going to the deep pockets of the Pope and Albert. So between 1517 to 1517, or 1521, the rift between Luther continued to grow until finally the showdown came in 1521 at the Diet of Worms, and Luther finally was getting the debate that he had been asking for, or so he thought, at the council, was crowded with elites, imperial lords, clergy, the emperor himself was there, and of course, the pope was there. Luther didn't get the debate he was asked for. Instead, what was there were all his writings. At that point, he had written pretty extensively criticizing Catholic doctrine. And essentially, he just asked him two questions. Number one, are these your writings? To which he responded in the affirmative, yes, they are. And the second question was, do you recant? Because if he doesn't, he would be excommunicated from the church and declared a heretic. I mean, you could die for being declared a heretic. Luther was certainly had a fear of the Lord, but he also had a fear of the Catholic Church. He was afraid of the repercussions. He was afraid of opposing the church, the pope, the emperor. So this was no laughing matter. So Luther asked for a day to consider. So they gave him a day. The day passes, the council reconvenes, and now they demand Luther's answer. And here is Luther's response. Since then, your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner plain and unvarnished, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason. For I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves. I am bound to the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. That last part is significant when he prays, may God help me, because he's full of fear. He knows he's going to need the help of God because he's come to realize the magnitude of what he's just done. So then Luther would then be excommunicated, declared a heretic, and for the next nine months he goes into hiding in fear of his life. And during those nine months, he wrote pretty prolifically. In addition to that, he actually went on to translate the Greek New Testament to the common language of the day, a feat that he only accomplished in 11 weeks, which is absolutely remarkable. So through his teaching, 
through his preaching, through his writings, he would essentially transform the church. Many upon many would renounce the Catholic faith and turn to the doctrines of the Scriptures. The 95 Theses contain the fundamental doctrines of Luther's theology and essential doctrines of the Reformation. To state just a few of them, number 21 says, Therefore, those preachers of indulgences err who say that by the Pope's indulgence, a man may be exempt from all punishments and be saved. Number one, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, and saying, Repent ye, etc., intended that the whole life of his, of his believers on earth should be a constant penance. In other words, repentance is not something that you do just at the church. Repentance is not something that you do when you confess your sins to a priest. Repentance is not something that you can buy. Repentance characterizes the entire life of the believer. It is the essence of the Christian life, one of turning away from sin in the world and turning to Christ. Number two, and the word penance neither can nor may be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is to confession and atonement as exercised under the priest's ministry. Through diligent study of the New Testament Greek, Luther actually came to realize that the word penance there is a wrong translation of the word repentance. In the Latin Vulgate, it would say do penance. Do penance then would be, according to the Catholic Church, confess your sins before a priest, buying indulgences and such things. But he came to the conclusion that that's actually the wrong interpretation. No, the right interpretation is repentance, a turning away. Wait, so one small word carries that kind of significance, determines what the life of a believer should be characterized by. So this moment on October 31st, 1517 was essential in the life of the church. It was a moment that was like a large boulder tossed into the waters producing this ripple effect that would go on to affect many other places and countries and the parts of the world for years to come. Even to this very day. And so this is a part of the legacy of our lives. This is a legacy that we carry. This is significant in the life of the church. Through this, we see the importance of carrying on the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the price that many others were willing to pay for it. Because there is no other way by which men will be saved other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Reformation was essential in reestablishing the foundational principles of our Christian faith that succinctly summarize what we believe as Reformed believers. And these are considered to be the five solas. So if you believe these five things, then you are Reformed in your beliefs. These are sola scriptura, or Scripture alone, that the Bible is the sole and final authority in all matters of life and godliness. The church looks to its Bible as its ultimate authority, not in any other person, not in a priest, not in the Pope, not in anybody else, not any other institution, but the Bible alone is the authority of believers. We stand on the Bible alone. First, or 2 Peter 3.16 tells us that all Scripture 
without exception, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Scripture alone is our final authority. Second, sola fide, or faith alone. Faith alone is what saves us, not our works, not doing penance. We are not to present the good works of our lives before Jesus Christ and say, here are my good works, Lord. This is why I have earned salvation. This is why I have earned eternal life. This is why I have earned my place in heaven. To which Jesus will just simply respond and say, your, your word works are filthy rags, apart from faith. But no, it is Jesus alone who saves alone, by faith alone. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is faith alone that saves us and not our works. Sola gratia, or by grace alone. It is by grace alone that we are saved. There is nothing about us that we can present before God to say, hey, here I am, God. This is why I deserve salvation. Nothing that you are in and of yourself, nothing that you do, nothing that you will accomplish that will make God save you. It is grace alone that saves. And praise God for that, because in and of ourselves, there's nothing that we can present for, to God that is worthy of our being saved. But the Lord, by His grace, saves us. So is Christus, or Christ alone. Meaning there is no other mediator between God and sinful humanity other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone, based on his work on the cross, is the one who grants us access to the Father. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And soli deo gloria, or to the glory of God alone or God's glory alone, that everything that we can do, we do to the glory of God. That everything that we do, we should do to the glory of God because God is creator, because God has made us in his image, because God is the one who sent forth his son to die on the cross for our sins. So God is worthy of our lives. God is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of our worship. So God is worthy of our entire lives. So we give our lives and everything that we do to his glory. The Reformers gave these foundational principles their finest expression. Not only that, but they were also able to recover foundational doctrines that matters to our life and also to what we even do on Sunday mornings when we gather together on the Lord's Day. So to conclude, what are some of the things that the Reformation recovered? First and most importantly, the Reformation recovered the gospel, justification by faith alone. What the Catholic Church did and still does to this day is the setting up of this kind of cosmic bank account where in it you can save up all your good works and all your confessions to a priest and all your partakings of the Lord's Supper and the purchases of indulgences to buy yourself less time in purgatory. But that only makes a Frankenstein of the gospel. Now, I'm not quite sure if the Catholic Church still practices indulgences in the way that they did in Luther's time, but I do know that they've never actually condemned indulgences. 
but their system fails to apprehend the gravity of sin. Right? Because if I can still do everything right and still end up in purgatory, then what is the point of the cross? What is the point of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners? What does that accomplish if I still have to go to this place and spend years upon years and decades and perhaps centuries still paying for my sins until finally I've paid for them and can get to heaven? And so the Reformation was instrumental in recovering the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Luther would say that the church's true treasure is the gospel. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Acts 4.12, that there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Reformation also recovered preaching in the life of the church, which before that was just mainly liturgical, and even then, when priests preached, was mainly just in special occasions or celebrations, such as holidays. But the Reformation brought preaching back to the Sunday service and made it a defining mark of the true church. Another thing that was recovered is the priesthood of all believers. In the Catholic Church, the priest is the mediator between God and man. It is a role that is reserved for Jesus Christ alone, according to the Scriptures. But the priest is the mediator of knowledge, since only he had the Bible and only he could read it. The priest was the mediator of forgiveness, for a person could only confess their sins to a priest and receive forgiveness. The priest was the mediator of the presence of God on earth. But the Reformation, especially through the translation of the Scriptures into common language, restored the priesthood of all believers because now everybody had access to the Scriptures. Now everybody can understand and apply the Scriptures for themselves. Not that the church never needed teachers and preachers, but now man can look to the Scriptures and read it on their own. And the Scriptures also teach us the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, by which then all believers are made as priests, in the temple of God, where we can offer the sacrifice of our lives to the glory of God, and that we can come before the throne of grace at any time, at any moment, wherever we are, and confess our sins to the Lord and receive His forgiveness. 1 Peter 2, 5 and verse 9 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the Bible says, as believers, we are a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The Reformation was also, also recovered music. In the life of the church, prior to the Reformation, churches did not sing together. In fact, it was condemned by the church. There was one particular individual, a pre-reformer, thought it so vitally too important to the life of the church to sing together. His name was Jan Hus. 1372, as he was born, died in 1415. He was a priest in Prague. And he was inspired by the writings of John Wycliffe. And he then came to write against papal authority and against indulgences. He would eventually be excommunicated, condemned as a heretic, and burned as a stake 
for his views, including his views on singing in the church. Luther himself would write many hymns. The one hymn that he is most known for, many of you I'm sure I'm familiar with, is A Mighty Fortress. A Mighty Fortress is our God. These hymns he wrote for the church to be sung by the church. That's why one of the reasons why I love hymns because they're grounded in heritage and legacy and tradition. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Marriage was also recovered thanks to the Reformation. As you know, the priest is not allowed to marry but live a celibate life. And in a way, perhaps in a way that wasn't intended, the value of the calling of marriage for the priesthood was considered to be the kind of life that was solely dedicated to serving the church and serving God, and that made it, in a way, sort of the highest calling of one's life. Which I never quite understood because papal authority means that they sort of they, they draw their succession from the apostle Peter, but Peter himself was married, a married man. But thanks to the Reformation, actually, in the writings of Luther, many priests and nuns actually left convents and monasteries to pursue marriage. Praise God for that. In fact, Martin Luther was the Christian mingle of his day because he made it a task of his to actually get these people married together. But he taught that you don't have to devote your life to being a priest or a nun to give glory to God, that marriage is actually a great thing. Bless God in your marriage. Glorify God in your marriage. It is a calling. It is a gift. And then lastly, calling and vocation. The priesthood, monks, and nuns were considered to be a special kind of citizens because they were the ones who devoted their life to God. And so it was understood that they can honor God in a way that most people cannot. But Luther wrote and spoke adamantly against that. And he drew many of his teachings and writings from a passage we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 10.31, where it says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. So whether you are a minor, cobbler, husband or wife, single, Whatever it is that you do for your vocation, whatever assignment God has given to you, you can glorify God and should glorify God in whatever it is you do. All people who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, whether their life is devoted to the ministry or not, they all can glorify God with their lives. Not just a select group of individuals. We as Christians have a rich heritage. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and they have handed to us a legacy to maintain, to defend, to continue to proclaim. As I said earlier, it's nowhere near as significant as the most monumental event in history in the life of the church, and that is Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. More important than anything else, that is the event that we want to continue to proclaim and defend and put forth to the world because only the gospel can save. But stories like these, events like the Reformation, help us to remember the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They help us to know our legacy, 
our heritage and hopefully encourage us and embolden us to continue to stand in that legacy and to continue to proclaim it boldly to the world, to one another, to the coming generations. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we desire to be desire to be faithful. Lord, our prayer and hope is that future generations would be able to look back to our generations and consider us faithful. Lord, and we cannot do this on our own. We need the strength that the Spirit supplies. We need your word. We need the church. We need the intercession of our high priest, who is Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to proclaim the gospel, to fight against anything that would threaten the gospel of Jesus Christ, what so many others gave their lives to defend, what the apostles gave their lives to defend, what Jesus himself gave his life for. The gospel itself is our legacy. This is our heritage. May we treasure it. May we prize it. And may we proclaim it. Help us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.